0: None of us are perfect, right? And so you learn from people both in terms of the impact that they make on you individually, and then you interpersonalize that as far as like, well, that worked with me, so maybe I'll try that with others. But then you also look at the things you're like, I just don't agree with that at all, and boy, they, I don't agree the way they showed up today. The more I think you can learn and adapt from others, both good, bad, ugly, et cetera, I think that just makes you a better person in some ways, but in the professional world, I just think it makes you a better partner and collaborator with your colleagues.
1: Hi, I'm Jubin, operating partner at Kleiner Perkins, and I'm excited that you're tuning into Grit, a podcast that sits down with amazing leaders every week to discuss what it takes to create, build, and scale world-class organizations. The goal of this is not for it to be a highlight reel of how successful my guests are, rather a candid exploration of how hard it is, both personally and professionally, to build history-making companies. Speaking of incredible companies, we don't do sponsorships on the show, so if you're inspired by the stories of my guests, My call to action is to reach out and let's find a great home for you in the Kleiner portfolio. Well, let's get going. I start all these things off the same way. Welcome. Hi, Jubin. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Thanks for coming. Great to have you. I'm going to read your background back to you. Tell me what I get wrong and we'll go from there. Cool. All right. You got your BS from Boston College. Then you went to Harvard, got your MBA. Then uh, is it Sachi or Saatchi? It is Saatchi. Saatchi and Saatchi Advertising, you're an account supervisor there for four years. Then you went to Microsoft, did 10 years there, first as a product manager, then group manager, then director, then senior director over the Office 365 Consumer Group, then you went to Skype as the senior director of product management, or product marketing, I'm sorry, spent a year there. Trulia, as the VP of Marketing Analytics, spent a year there. You went to EA, you did six years at EA, then as of October of 2020, you became the CMO of Riot Games. That's correct. I have a bunch of questions for you about your background, but I guess before I dive in, what was conversation like for Jason growing up at the dinner table? Oh, goodness, that's a great question. Well, I guess to to know a little bit
0: about me and context, so my dad was in the Air Force, which basically meant we moved around every one to three years, as all military brats know and are familiar with. I was born in Japan on an Air Force base that's no longer there, just outside Tokyo, and then proceeded to live in almost 10 different states in the US. So conversation at the dinner table, I have a younger brother who's three years younger than me. And conversation at the dinner table was a lot of bonding with him. You know, we are put into different situations. And of course, we were young. So At the time, we were very flexible and adaptable, but it helped me build a pretty strong connection with my brother. And then I think with my parents, you know, it was very different hours. It wasn't a nine to five job that that he had. So you come in and you spend quality time together and you talk about being in a certain place,
1: right? It was a lot of different dinner tables. It was a lot of different dinner tables. 100%. How many cities did you live in by the time you were 18? Oh, my God. Over 10? Yeah, easily. I had the CEO. Well, I guess at the time he was the CEO of Splunk. Doug Merritt on I'm the sure. show. Yeah. And great, great guy. Like, I love that guy to pieces. He moved around pretty much as much as you did, like a lot. And he developed these very unique habits that created order in his chaos. One was that he became an amazing athlete because that was the way that he kind of found his tribe through sports at school. And being the best in a sport usually helps you fit in. The second was that when he would move somewhere new, the first thing that he would do is unpack everything as fast as possible and perfectly organize it. Anyway, there's a bunch of them. I'm not going to go through them all. Do you have anything like that? It's. I would say in some ways, my experience was almost the opposite. You know, I actually
0: attribute a lot of what makes me who I am today around being a bit more of a chameleon. So when I would move different places, it was almost this perspective of like, I gotta figure that who what this is, like where we are, what the people are like. And again, I'm a kid, right? So the lens on this is not super hard problems, but I'll tell you like going from one state, it was cool to be on the football team. Going to a different state, it was cool to be a straight A student. And so you kind of had to adapt. And so I think this chameleon adaptability is definitely something I I honed and learned. But that was more for me, like the path to finding your place, which was observing, adapting, which you could argue you know, if you do that too much, you kind of lose a sense of yourself. But that's kind of how I approached it.
1: Did you resent it
0: at the time? I don't think so. I was too young to probably even have that kind of perspective. I think looking back on it, I look at it pretty favorably. And I got to catch myself sometimes to make sure I am who I am. Like I'm not just some entity that kind of morphs into different places in different ways. But yeah, I think resentment was probably not on my mind at that time.
1: Did it take you a while to build your own confidence in who you were, like finding your identity? Do you think that kicked that can down the road for a long time because constantly you're trying to fit into the environment rather than, th- I guess, the opposite? Yeah, I think it's interesting that the word confidence, I have a very clear memory. If you know, skip
0: forward a bit, when I was at Saatchi and Saatchi, I was there four years and I got accepted to business school you know, I had a great time there. It was awesome. And for all intents and purposes, I felt like I had a good impact, but it was my first job out of college. And so, you know, who of us even knows what we're really doing then, but I'll never forget a manager of mine at the time. was like, Hey, super excited for you to go off to business school. Congrats, all that kind of good stuff. But their one piece of advice was like, go learn to be confident. I was like, Oh, what does that mean? What are you talking about? And I think it's a little bit of what you're alluding to, which is There was so much of me that was meant to not so much please others, but definitely to snap into an existing kind of way of doing things or just, hey, I follow that person. So I'm going to make sure I do it exactly like they do and less about who I am and less about my own point of view. So again, it's not to say like it was some monumentally like thing, but I definitely was conscious of that going to business school. And I think something I really focused on.
1: Yeah. Maybe the reason I'm digging at this is because I've heard you talk about risk and I'd say you have a pretty high risk tolerance and I think you attribute a lot of the successes that you've had in your life towards taking risks that others maybe might not take and as I started putting pieces together I guarantee you it's because when you did all this jumping around and moving when you were younger you know you just got conditioned to change generally being positive and probably improving your lived condition, who you were. I don't know, maybe not. Maybe I'm putting pieces together that don't exist, but that was the impression that I had. No, I think that's right. I would only add to
0: it that the tolerance for risk didn't always work out. I think what that taught me actually is a little bit of armor building, right? On, hey, things aren't always gonna go your way. And I kind of carry this with me today a little bit, which is I do struggle sometimes, I think relating to folks who have a harder time understanding that change is just going to happen. And if you can't adapt to it, I don't know how you move forward. And so as I work on places to be more empathetic, that's one of them, which is a just a different way of what you're saying, which is I've been so used to change. I've seen the pros and cons of it. I've survived. My life has grown in different ways, and I certainly don't have a lot of regrets. So it's I look at that as a positive thing, and I see the end of the movie, and I know the end of the movie is going to still land up in a pretty good place. And so I do have difficulties sometimes related to people who have a harder time with that. And I think that's an area of empathy that I certainly work on today.
1: Yeah, I agree with you. When I was in middle school, grew up in the Bay Area, moved to San Diego for high school, I resented it. I was not happy about it. I didn't know a single person in San Diego. I'd never been to San Diego. And my first week and a half at school, I would walk around with my lunch in my hand and I would just walk around campus eating because I didn't want to be alone. And I did not want to, you know, I a freshman in high school is insecure. And at the time, it was like the worst feeling in the entire world. I couldn't have felt more alone and ostracized. I was small. I hadn't hit puberty. I was loud, compensating for the fact that I was small and probably overly boisterous and overly confident. And knowing that I could come out of that with friends and whatever, then gave me the confidence to like be like well if i could do that you know then i could go to chicago and go live on my own in chicago and that was the best experience i've ever had like that was the most impactful thing that i've ever done sometimes it's easy to say yeah change is good building the narrative retrospectively but it's only when you do it and you kind of build those blocks on top of each other a few times over you're like oh god That actually made a lot of sense for me. Like that kind of worked. I don't know if that resonates, but that's something that I experienced. It totally does. It totally does. And by the way, like it's still hard to fire that
0: up, right? You know, as you get older in life and you get more comfortable, and there's more to risk. It's not so much automatic for me as it is once my brain kind of finds myself down that path. I mean, it's interesting with Riot. I mean, we were in the middle of a pandemic. I was pretty happy at EA. It's a great place yeah, at some point I wanted to get to the CMO level and that was, but that was going to come at some point anyway, when the time was right. And this thing was like, just came along and it was like, well, why don't we just jump in to this place that's never had this before in the middle of a pandemic where I don't live in even the city yet. I mean, it's just, so I think like the appetite for risk-taking, even when you're consciously not even aware you're doing it, the cylinders have to fire in the brain a little bit, right? But I, I'm with you completely on the, Once you're in that zone, you do go back to all the things that you lived through and you use them to kind of give yourself both confidence, but also a little bit of comfort that, hey, like we're going to proceed and like what's the worst that can happen and see how it goes. But
1: yeah, I've also heard you say in a similar context that you're the amalgamation of everyone that you've ever worked with in your career. And again, like just putting a few pieces together, I also feel that way. I feel like a unique thing that I can do is pull from everybody something that I really like, and try and almost subconsciously, it just kind of becomes a part of me. And I I do think it's because when you experience so much change, so many different things, I think that's the upside in some way. Don't you agree? Like It seems like you've been able to apply that to your professional life.
0: Oh, 100%. And I've been really fortunate, I think, to work with some pretty fantastic people and work under some very amazing leaders. And I even say to a lot of them today, who I stay in touch with, I just, I steal from them constantly. Both you know, the good and the bad. I mean, like, none of us are perfect, right? And so you learn from people both in terms of the impact that they make on you individually, and then you interpersonalize that as far as like, well, that worked with me, so maybe I'll try that with others. But then you also look at the things you're like, I just don't agree with that at all. And boy, they, I don't agree the way they showed up today. And I think that's also something that I've always used as kind of learning for me as well. Because I certainly know that I'm sure folks I work with, they're like, oh, like. I'm not sure I agree with kind of Jason and, and that's all good. But the more I think you can learn and adapt from others, both good, bad, ugly, et cetera, I think that just makes you a better person in some ways. But in the professional world, I just think it makes you a better partner and collaborator with your colleagues.
1: Speaking of old bosses, there's two lessons that I've heard you reflect on in your first job at Saatchi, right? Saatchi, am I saying that right? Saatchi and Saatchi, yeah. And I was hoping you could just unpack them both a little bit more. The first is that your boss rarely celebrated when times were good. And the second was where you learned how much writing matters.
0: Yeah, so a big shout out to Jim Fitzgerald, who was my first manager there. Easily, you know, one of the best I think marketer minds that I've worked with in my career. He had a high bar, and I think if I look back, you know, at the time, it, it, I'm 22, I'm out of college, it's my first job, it's in a fast paced industry. You're just happy to be there and learning. But he had a very high bar. Like he he just he didn't suffer. You know, I guess what I would call a learning curve. And that high bar had different forms, right? So we're in the client side. So I wasn't a creative. I was on the account side. And so how you show up with clients and what you put in front of them, it's not just about like, hey, let's have a conversation. It's the quality of work and thinking that you put in front of a client matters every single time. And certainly I got that wrong a bunch. But I think the high bar and the high bar as it relates to the time, because this was when, so this was 1996, 97. So this was pre.com, boom and bust, email was just starting. So we would fax stuff still, just not to date myself, but we'd fax stuff still all the time. And so the written word was essential as far as getting across a point of view to a client, certainly a creative brief, things like that. And he was exceptional at it. I mean, I'll never forget to this day, sitting in his office, blue lining a creative brief and every single word, every single word we would discuss. And at the time you're like, come on, this is a waste of time. Like, what are we doing? But again, in hindsight, it was just, it was discipline and it was an adherence to the craft. And I think that's awesome. And I definitely don't profess to have that bar myself consistently all the time. It's really easy to slip back from that and just say like, that's just too much work. We don't have time for it, but I loved it. I love that he instilled that in me and he was hardcore, like in the sense of like, yeah, we got a job to do, you know, and this is not about celebrating all the time. Like we have, we work to do that kind of never ends. And it wasn't that he was like a he wasn't a hardcore workaholic kind of person, but he made clear that there was a time and a place for taking a step back and congratulating yourself and your team on good work. And then there were most of the time was about, you know, what does the client need next? So, again, it was just a good first job for me in
1: that space. So you went from Saatchi to Harvard, then to Microsoft, correct? Correct. Correct. Knowing what you know today about Silicon Valley and tech and all these things, would you go to Harvard again? Oh, that's a great question,
0: which necessitates me saying I did not get into Stanford. It was actually the only school I didn't get into, and um, I applied to a handful. And it's funny, I, the Stanford letter, for in case you care about the details, came last. So I was excited. Obviously, it's Harvard, is Harvard. And I mean, who wouldn't be excited about that? But my girlfriend, who became my fiance, became my wife at the time, you know, had her heart set on California, and I was like, sorry, kind of got that, failed that one. You know, but it's interesting to your question, though, because I definitely knew tech was this emerging space. And I graduated in 02 uh, from HBS, which was a recession. And this was like the, again, the tail end of the bust. And so you had companies in the Valley like Siebel and and some big names at the time who obviously are not around today, but they were rescinding offers. Right. So it was just this nasty, nasty kind of situation with recruiting in the tech in, in the Bay Area. And Microsoft, to their credit, was still hiring. I have no regrets at all about my time there. And certainly we can talk about that if you want. But I do think a lot about it. Like if I had gotten into Stanford, would it have changed my experience in that industry? And I think the obvious thing to say is probably. I mean, you just would have What had, about no business school? I have no regrets on that. I think advertising for me was something that I loved. But one of the benefits of being in advertising is you get to stare across the table to clients and really kind of understand... Hey, is that the job actually i'd really rather be doing and you know as all marketers know advertising is a really important but only one piece of what it means to be a marketer and i really wanted the full plate and so the only real way for me to do that was to go to school back to school and harvard did that i mean it definitely opened those doors without question so for me i did the classic pivot of go to school change industry but stay in function, which, you know, which was marketing. And it worked really well for me. So I I have absolutely zero regrets whatsoever about business school.
1: Fair enough. Fair enough. My mother still has this idea in her head that I should go to business school. I'm like, Mom, there's just no way there's no way there's no way. It's a very (laughs) expensive two years with a pretty high opportunity cost, not just expensive in terms of your tuition. Very high
0: opportunity cost. I think the thing I tell people is unless you're just looking for a two year vacation and you can afford it, like that's great. Good for you. But you got to know why you're going there. Like you you got to know what you want out of it. And I think the people that do that without question, look back on it favorably. I think the people that are like, I was in consulting, I went back to consulting. I think they might have a different answer to that.
1: You go to Microsoft, 10 years there, great run, career changing run for you, learn a bunch. Then you do a year at Skype, a year at Trulia. Earlier in the conversation, you mentioned not all risks have worked out my way. Were you maybe alluding to one of those two? Yeah, it's interesting. So Skype, it was a great 10
0: years at Microsoft and I mean, wonderful people there, learned a ton, as you said, but you know, like personally, as much as Seattle is a fantastic city, my wife and I personally were just like, we wanted to change the scenery. And again, as I said earlier, like California was always on our list. And so that became a priority for us on a personal life side. And then coincidentally, Microsoft had just acquired Skype And Tony Bates was running it still, Lisa Steele was hired as her CMO, and I met with Elisa and I was like, look, I can come and help build this out. You're treated separately. So Skype was a standalone business for a while under Tony, and it was my way to kind of get down to California. It was my way to also find my way back to consumer. So as much as I loved working on a huge business in a brand like Office or even Windows and different parts of that as well... It's B2B and I think it was a great learning experience for me, but I very genuinely want to get back to a consumer oriented business. So Skype fit that box as well. And then of course the reality happens in terms of the risk part, when you're acquired by a large company, ultimately you're going to get integrated in some way. And that's basically what happened. It gets tucked in and it becomes a battle of fiefdoms. And so eight, nine months later, a lot of people left. Tony, I think left, Elisa left, and it just became clear that it was going to be, you know, again, not a, in a bad way, it was just going to be another division of Microsoft. And I'm like, well, I've done that. And so I started to look across for something else. Kira Wampler, who just was hired at Trulia to run all of their consumer marketing and product, actually, she and I connected. And it was obviously a totally different type of company for me. Four or 500 people had just IPO'd, still run by its founder, Pete Flint. And it was just an awesome opportunity to jump in with someone like Kira, who's amazing. And we were kicking butt. Like, we were doing pretty well. And then, of course, Zillow comes in and buys us. And again, it was just this really interesting experience of being on the other side where I was like, I was at Microsoft for 10 years. Like we buy people or we buy companies, companies don't buy us. And truly it was the smaller fish in the pond and we got bought. And so Kira was like, that's not why I came here. And so she ultimately kind of decided to move on, which understandably so. And it gave me a chance to work with Pete more directly. He's also fantastic uh, as both a CEO and a founder. But ultimately, you know, Zillow didn't buy us, you know, for the marketing team. And so that writing was on the wall.
1: And that kind of was what led me to start looking and discover EA. Having gone through all of that, what was the shittiest time? What was the point where you kind of went home to your wife and you're like, this sucks? You know, it's interesting. Like, Sorry, can yeah. I caveat that? Please. Did you ever feel that way at Microsoft when things weren't when you were at one place for 10 years where change was not present sometimes with me i feel like my lowest points are when things are slow not moving like i want it to not changing around me anyway you know
0: for all my old friends at microsoft you know potentially listening it's i had nothing but opportunity there but i had five different roles in 10 years so that's a little partly to your question i did start to learn then Kind of the tail end of my time there, what signals my brain fires off for me when it comes to starting to feel complacent or not challenged or just not even clear on what a future might look like and is that even exciting? And all those things started to happen. And I think you have to obviously listen to yourself when that does because other things start to happen, like you don't show up in a good way and people can tell they're not stupid, that you're not engaged. And so those were just feelings and experiences I had there. I would say maybe a different answer to your question too. My experience at Skype, but definitely a Trulia was the ground moving under your feet that's outside your control. And I never really had that. Like Microsoft, like I said, Microsoft's a huge company. You didn't have to really worry about stability. You knew things were going to basically be on course. You know, I was there during the 2008 financial crisis. That was painful for many reasons, obviously, but you still kind of knew like the company was going to be there. It wasn't going to fold, et cetera. You know, a Trulia, that was probably one of the biggest risks I took just because it was this brand new company, just IPO'd. It's capitalization. It's, you know, it's not like it was guaranteed to survive. And you had to scrape and hustle and really, really work hard to make every quarter's numbers and recognize that the next day is not guaranteed. That was hard. It wasn't bad because I think the learning experience there was one of the best I've ever had. But at the time, it was not fun. And I think really I learned there more than any place the importance of execution, the importance of not taking for granted that things are just going to work out or that teams are going to do what they're supposed to do. And then, of course, again, things outside your control. You have competitors that are bigger than you that can come in and and dictate your future. That all
1: didn't feel great at the time, for sure. I appreciate that answer. Okay, I have a bunch of questions about Riot stuff. Actually, I I have a ton. Sure. First and most important question. What is the best video game console of all time? And there's really only one right answer. The video game console hardware. Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> I'll give you two answers because I, I feel compelled to give you. This is not a console, but the Commodore sixty four in the in the day was yeah. easily one of the best gaming machines out there. Good old floppy disk. Shout out to that. Console wise, I, I'm gonna might surprise you. Like I love the Sega Genesis. Okay. And you might have expected me to say Nintendo. I mean, Nintendo's great. Everyone loves Nintendo. They're an amazing company. I never got on that train. Like I never kind of got on the Nintendo fanboy train. Sega Genesis was really kind of it for me. And then of course being at Microsoft Xbox, you know, was there and I got, I was a late PlayStation adopter, but I gotta tell you, like it's got Commodore sixty four and Sega Genesis. I'm gonna I'll stick with those
1: two. So Okay, fair enough. Well my answer was Nintendo sixty four. Of course it was. Of course. Of course, of course. it Not, was. No, no surprise. Of course. Uh Mario Kart and Super Smash were like my childhood. I remember one time when my mom she got remarried and I had me and my all my cousins in the restaurant in a room. I brought my N sixty four to the wedding and it got stolen that night. And like it ruined everybody's night because I was so upset that my N64 got stolen. Anyway, I think you were the one that told me about this article that was fascinating, this Matthew Ball article that I want to use as a framing point for some questions that I have about Riot. Before I do, for those that are listening, what is Riot Games? Yeah, Riot Games is a gaming
0: company that was founded about 14, 15 years ago by Mark Merrill and Brandon Beck. They were kind of diehard uh, Dota players, for those out there, they know what Dota is, which is a MOBA game, genre game. And they decided to basically make a version that they wanted to play. And born out of that was League of Legends. That game has been around, like I said, for over a decade now. It is the largest PC game in the world, played by over 100 million players every month. Since then, Riot has also added to its stable of experiences, a uh, probably a best-in-class esports arm. So we were definitely one of the first ones to really invest and help make the ecosystem of esports work. That is still a work in progress, of course, but League of Legends, its finals for esports, for example, will obtain a size, an audience size comparable to the Super Bowl to give people a sense, like it's huge, huge numbers. And then most recently, we've added an entertainment arm. So we launched our first show, Arcane, last fall, did amazingly well with our players. And so we have kind of... What we would say is, you know, the entertainment company of the 21st century, and I think, you know, you mentioned Matt, who I've gotten to know over the years, who's also just phenomenal in this space. You know, the entertainment company of the 21st century is going to come from games. You know, the next Disney is going to come from games, and in order for that to happen, and, and if we think we have a shot at that—definitely not guaranteed, but we definitely have a shot at that—you got to have great IP. So we think we have great IP in League of Legends and even Valorant, which is our newest one. And you have to provide players, you know, this community of people that invest hours and hours and hours in your ecosystem. You got to give them stuff to do. Right. So games are first and foremost for us, but giving them the chance to watch socially, you know, the sports side of things. And then, of course, on the entertainment side as well. So that's who we are. But at at the core of us, we're a gaming company and we care deeply about our players. And like I said, we got tens of millions around the world that do
1: it every day i was doing some benchmarking because i'm not a gamer really and this world still is a little bit foreign to me so like i read that stat that you just talked about where the league of legends finale was had as many viewers as the super bowl basically that like blew my mind and you mentioned earlier that the amount of users that league of legends has i think the number that i found was around 120 million active users 150 million registered users of League of Legends. And again, these are just big numbers. I had no idea. So then I was like, how many people play soccer? That was the question that I asked myself. Like, how many people play the most popular sport in the world that's been around since the 1800s? 260 million is the answer. 260 million people play soccer. And I was thinking, oh my God, half the people are playing League of Legends is soccer? Worldwide like that blew my mind for scale. That was a moment where I was like, are you kidding me? This is crazy. That blew my mind. And I think as I think more about it, it blew my mind the most because we're like what in the first two decades of this thing. I think that's that.
0: And that's the really interesting point, which is gaming as an industry is that it's, it's 20, maybe 30 years old. I think the, the misperception comes from who is in that number. You know, for us, the vast majority of those players come outside North America and Western Europe, and it's just not an audience that, you know, typical sports cares about, right? And and I think global football, global soccer is probably the exception to that. I think certainly the World Cup, you know, the final will draw a billion users around the world, right, for obvious reasons. But when you think about North America, Western Europe, the context is always comparables to obviously traditional sports, NFL, NBA, baseball, et cetera. But those audiences are not gamers, right? Those audiences, you know, particularly in baseball's case, what's what, 50 plus white male, right? So those are not the people that are playing our games. And I think because of that, it just goes overlooked. What's interesting, though, this September, the Asian Games, which is kind of like the it's a bunch of countries, obviously, in Asia who get together and do their version of the Olympics. League of Legends is going to be a sport in that competition. So think about that. It's a sporting event. Countries will bring teams to play League of Legends at that event. Yes. And we're talking to Paris about the same thing for the Summer Olympics in 24. So.
1: Oh, man. okay. I I talked to Brandon Snow, the basically the CRO of Activision Blizzard, about this a little bit, but I didn't get all the questions that I wanted out about this specific thing. And so now this is my chance to do so. Awesome. I take clients to the Warriors game. okay, And like we could sit somewhere nice and there's like courtside and like it's a show where you can bring people. Would you do that? If I came down to LA and I was like, Jason, let's go hang out for a night, which we're gonna do. And you're like, dude, great timing. Like the League of Legends, whatever game is playing at the wherever tonight. Like, is that a thing? Is, are we there yet or are we not there yet? Or is it all like on Twitch? First off, Worlds,
0: which is what we call our finals competition for League of Legends, is gonna be in North America this year. It's gonna be in your backyard in San Francisco. At the Chase Center, it's going to be in New York. And if I took you to the, and by the way, I'll happily get you in there. If you went to one of those, you would be blown away. Is it a hot ticket? We usually go for free, like we don't usually charge. Like it's not a revenue generating event like the ticket sales are. We're, you know, I think to your other part of your question, we have events throughout the year, but they're not physically attended, right? They're at different sites, but they're also done mostly virtually sometimes. But our world's tournament, like if you just Google that and take a look at the last couple of years and what we put on, we have an opening ceremonies. We have anthem songs from some of the biggest artists in the world. And we fill stadiums. I mean, obviously pre-COVID. But we fill stadiums with tens of thousands of fans. And when I say fans, I mean, they are on their feet cheering as loudly as the Warriors fans will tonight, you know, for game one of the finals. And so... I think you'd be blown away. I think anyone would be blown away, and I was too. As much as you're like, okay, esports is a big deal, cool, cool, got it. You go to these events, and you just see how much fans care about these players and teams that are playing games they love. They scream as loud as anyone else, and it's awesome, man. So,
1: all right, I'll be your plus one either at Chase or in New York, deal? Done, make that happen. And then I guess like, as a CMO, are you putting it on as if you're putting on a conference for your own company? As if it was a dreamforce or something? Like we're putting it on as if it's a Super Bowl. And you're you guys produce that. We produce all of it. And
0: look, I mean the thing we don't do. So I mean I don't say that pause, you know, for any dramatic effect. We do produce all of it. We produce it head to toe and obviously we work with really awesome partners who are good at these things, but our production value And quality bar is as high. And frankly, we'd like to aspire even higher than what the Super Bowl does or any other major sporting event. What we need to do more of is more of the always on storytelling around sports, right? So part of your reaction, which is, by the way, the reaction most people have to esports and numbers and, oh my gosh, it's way more interesting than I thought it was. It's just because we don't market it like a sport. And the reality is when you have that many people watching on a regular basis, They care about the same things that NBA fans care about. They care about players. They care about teams. They care about the country those teams are from. And they care about the competition itself.
1: And if you label it as a sport, does that then give it permission to enter into our cultural zeitgeist, which will then kind of like expand the reach? I think it is. And I think it has to. I think. Is there an analog of that? Is there anything else that that has happened in that? way before? I don't even know how to ask this question. Yeah, it's a, like, I don't
0: I don't know. It's a great okay, question. All right. I mean, there are certainly sports, right? I mean, like even skateboarding is finding its way into the mainstream, et cetera. But that's maybe not even the right uh, analogy either. Look, I think at the end of the day, like you said it, like it's a cultural, for a growing percent of the population, obviously young, right? So these are fans, you know, teenagers, et cetera, into their 20s and even sometimes younger or older, but it's just something they care about. And I don't want to get stereotypical of like gen A, gen Z and the digital generation and stuff like that. But you know, you talk to anybody that works in traditional sports right now. And the number one thing they're worried about is they're not bringing in those audiences to their sport, baseball, football, basketball, you know, hockey, soccer, they're just not. And what are those audiences doing? They're watching our stuff.
1: So this Matthew Ball article that I read, it it reminded me again, it's like, tell me if I'm way off the pasture here, but Stuart Butterfield, the CEO and founder of Slack has this expression that he said changed the game for him around marketing the company. And he said, don't sell saddles, sell horseback riding. When I read through that, that was my key takeaway. And the examples that Matt gives in the article are the oil business back in the day. And then the railway business where, you know, they missed the boat on everything, not trains because they were selling trains, not transportation. And the meta point that he was making was too many companies define themselves by products, not needs.
0: No, I think he's right. It's a little bit why you'll hear from us at Riot talk a lot about player expectations. And I think there's a balance to it, though, at the same time, right? Because at the end of the day, our players show up every day to play the game, right? They care deeply about what we deliver, feature functionality, you know, call it product. It's pure product. If Arcane, our first show last fall, was not done at an exceptionally high quality level, written in a wonderful way, performed in an awesome way, it wouldn't have done well. Right. And as, and it has nothing to do with how it's positioned, it just has to be a great show, it has to be a great entertainment experience. But I think moving forward, gaming companies, I think that can keep players in the ecosystem. So one of the things that we say a lot is we're actually not as worried about growing the audience from like. Go find new players. What we care about is creating such a passionate core that they'll become magnetized and attract them on their own. And if you pause and you think about that, you're like, okay, I guess that makes sense. But if you think harder, it actually reinforces a little bit of what you're talking about, which is we're not the ones defining why it matters to be in the ecosystem. Our players are. What we're doing is providing more input points in the ecosystem for them to play and share with each other or just enjoy you know, what they love about our IP. And again, it takes a little bit of while to kind of wrap your head around it. It has interesting implications you know, across the company for what we build, for what we market, and how we market. But, but I think what Matt's talking about is spot on, which is you've got to define the space in a much more aspirational way. And in our view, the best way to do that is you let players tell you, and they'll be pretty clear about what they want.
1: How long before the decree from Jason comes down to the company that says, we are not Riot Games, we are now Riot, and we are not a gaming company, we're an entertainment company. You've mentioned this before, like we think we, we have aspirations to be the next Disney, like I'm not saying anything that insightful here, like the writing's on the wall. They're going one way, there's no chance in hell, if I'm betting on it, that Netflix and Disney and others are not gonna create games going down or whatever direction we wanna go, and there's no way that you're not gonna go up. The bet that you're clearly making is that the gaming content and IP is gonna allow you to let people live in those worlds that they can then expand into other formats of media that they can consume. And they're making the inverse bet where, well, they've already done it, right? Like Disney or whoever owns Harry Potter or whatever, like they'll create the games or Madden and EA and that kind of thing. Okay, that was a question that turned into a soapbox, but. No,
0: I I love soapbox. Uh, (laughs) No, no, it's, I guess I'd say this and it might seem counterintuitive, but I'll give it a go. I actually don't think that day ever comes. And here's why. We actually believe if we lose too much focus on what made us successful, which is our games, and we lose the focus on serving that community of players, the rest of it doesn't work. Our IP did not come from film and TV, such as Disney, right? And obviously, they're easily one of the best out there at managing IP across lots of different touch points. And so, when I say next Disney, like that's an aspiration, that's not to say they're not doing it well. But to your point, they started in a different perspective, trying to serve mass audiences, right? Trying to really kind of expand that. We do think about it differently. We're not as concerned about mass audience reach or relevance, to be honest. What we're most concerned about is keeping those, what could be soon hundreds of millions of players in our ecosystem. And the key word, as you you know, you've heard me say now a few times, it's players. It's people playing our games. We have five games out today, more coming. So we'll continue to expand that portfolio. But I think, again, the long answer to that question is, I don't think we ever have to drop the games. And I don't even think we ever want to. It's such a part of who we are. And I think it does differentiate us from other quote unquote entertainment companies. I don't think, though, that precludes us from having the aspirations we do around esports, around entertainment. I think it actually makes us
1: distinct. But we'll see. We'll see. When we're enjoying a martini in the box of one of these (laughs) esports leagues in 10 years, we will see. That sounds great. So Riot is owned 94% ish by Tencent. I Googled like what is Riot worth and there was estimates of 20, 25 billion. It's pretty much an impossible task to be able to quote how much you're worth, but it's a lot. Tencent's a Chinese company. How important is China to this business? Number one, because like you said, a lot of your users, gamers, people are not in the US actually, they're abroad. And two, if it is important, which I assume it is like, what kind of challenge does that pose to you? as a marketer, generally speaking, independent of the stuff that's happening above our pay grade?
0: Yeah, I, I, a couple of things I'd say on this. One is, you know, when I was rec- doing my own research, obviously, to join the company, at the time, obviously, I was well aware that they were owned by Tencent. It's interesting, like, if you go back in time, about 10 years or so, Tencent was actually an early investor in Riot. And I think they were one of the first kind of believers, if you will, in what Mark and Brandon were building. And if you fast forward to today, back in January, we announced actually, uh, we have these kind of camp milestones. It's every three to five years. We set big strategy bets for the company. One of them for camp two, which is where we're at right now, that was announced in January, and we did this publicly, is that Tencent's actually allowing us to give equity back to rioters. And so one of the reasons that's important is we want to make sure we're able to feel like rioters have a stake in our success, right, our future success, just as Tencent does and for me, what I've really appreciated from them, and, I, and this is actually one of the things I, I haven't had to do in my career, like I've not had the chance to really work in this part of the world with teams in this part of the world. They're just a great partner, you know, and is the Chinese player audience important to us? 100%, like absolutely. They're some of the most passionate players out there and fans of our IP. But I would say we look at that no differently than we'd look at players in Turkey or players in Canada or players in Germany, etc. cetera. We have a pretty unique, I think, distribution of workforce around the world whose job it is is to represent those players locally so that we're not just, you know, kind of copy pasting what we think is relevant for them globally. So, I guess I'd say, a, they're as important to us uh, as any other audience. And I've actually really enjoyed, I think getting to work with teams there. We have a team in Shanghai. They do outstanding work. They're great partners for us. and, as far as Tencent itself like they are a publishing partner in China so we do work with them directly to publish our games there but i would just say you know one of the interesting things that and it wasn't a surprise so much it was just interesting learning for me but they've been a fantastic partner for us like in terms of how we market and how
1: we publish and how we get, how we take games to players and i've learned a ton so it's been an awesome journey so far when you joined Riot to be the CMO you weren't just the CMO. You were the first CMO. Like the company's never had a CMO before. And I didn't know that until I started digging in. Did that make you nervous or excited? Because I started thinking, boy, why wouldn't they have had a CMO yet? It's a pretty big company to not have had a CMO before. Like do, do they, maybe they don't care and now they do care and where are the bodies buried if they didn't care and now they do? Also obviously the excitement that comes with being the first CMO. I don't know. I'd love your honest reflection of that time. Yeah, I think it's
0: a hundred percent both. <laughs> Without question, it was exciting. I've been able to build different teams over the years—small teams, big teams—but to do it in a space that I care deeply about, my entire career, which is marketing, to do it in an industry that I love. I mean, I've played games my whole life, so being able to step away from EA, stay in gaming, and be a CMO—like it was the stars aligning for me—and it was incredibly exciting. And Everything you just said is 100% also true, which is, it's super tenuous. Like It's nice that you think this is important now, but why wasn't it important a year ago? And you can start to rationalize yourself as to why that was. But you obviously don't know that until you get here, boots on the ground. And I would just say, I've been here a year and a half. I have a full leadership team now. They're made up of some amazing, amazing marketers, both from Inside Riot as well as a bunch of new hires as well. But oh my goodness, like... It's hard, man. <laughs> I don't get confused. Like, marketing is in service of amazing products. And yes, we get to tell amazing stories. And yes, we have to be creative. And yes, like, it's we play a really critical role in success. But ever since I've been in tech, like, you just know when you're in a product company or a, particularly a creative product company, you kind of have to just know, like, your role and marketing is has a certain role to play. And so I think in gaming in particular, you know, in tech for sure, it was always this, like, hey, if we build it, they will come. It won't surprise you when I say as a marketer, I'm like, that's just completely not true. But those are just, those are little perception fights that you kind of have to take on one at a time. And I think Riot, everyone here has been incredibly supportive, CEO on down, and no one's confused about the importance of marketing. I think there's education that still needs to happen around, hey, what is the role of marketing? That for sure. I think there's education around the impact of marketing. So every CMO out there in any industry deals with this every single day, which is like, is this working? Are we spending money? And this is this a waste of money. Like that happens everywhere. And then, like I said, little perception battles. Right. Every single stakeholder and partner you have is amazingly supportive, as they might be. They have their own perception of marketing, and you have to decide which of those battles you want to take on and not.
1: But what do you mean about the perception thing? Just in terms of like what marketing is for, what it's good at. Like you think you need to rationalize your existence more than other functions? So I'll get a lot of eye rolls when
0: I say this next. I recognize that. But I I think, yeah, I think more than any other function in a company, and this is not unique to gaming or tech, I think everyone thinks they're a marketer. And by the way, like they are. If you work at a company, I don't care what the company is, you are a marketer of that company just by the way in which you show up and how you talk about that. But I think it is a craft. I think marketers tend to get apologetic about their craft. And, you know, the one thing I'd say is like this narrative over the last couple of years around is the CMO dead and should it be chief brand officer, chief customer officer, chief? I, no, it's marketing. It's actually put me in a even a more firm camp of if you can't define marketing in a clear and broad way for your company, like that's on you. But there is no world in which if you care about your brand and I, we, you and I could rattle off awesome brands right now that do this well. But if you care about your brand, you care about your customer, you need great marketing. And you need actually great marketers to tell you what that is. The rationalization of that is just part of the job. You've been in
1: tech, you've been in other fields. Is there anything that video game marketing does today that you think is like kind of bleeding edge? Like that you think there's forcing functions based on the business that you're in that will go into other fields at some point. Yeah,
0: hundred percent. I'd say the two things for me and they're related is there's an authenticity that we have when we talk to our players, we're not selling them stuff. We actually speak with them and the channels by which we do it are almost entirely owned. We certainly spend money on marketing, so that's, I'm not saying we, our budgets are, are zero, but our community work, our own channels work with them. The industry, not just Riot, I think the industry is best in class. If any other company out there, I don't care if you're an airline, you know, if you make toothpaste or you're a startup in tech, your ability to connect with your audience on a day-to-day basis, and I think that's the other thing that people need to realize, your content requirements to to engage players on a daily basis is completely on the other side of where I started my career, which is building a media plan with TV ads and print ads, right, where you're going to flight these things a couple quarters a year. Like that is just the complete opposite right now. And by the way, it's hard, like it's hard to engage audiences on a daily basis and be relevant and respond to complaints and make sure that your audience feels like you're listening to them and not just kind of kowtowing. It's
1: definitely one of the things that video games does super well. What's a brand that comes to mind for you that you think is great at marketing? Please don't say Apple. Please don't say no. Apple. <laughs> I love Apple too. I, I do too. Everybody says Apple. No, I was was gonna say the other one, which I think everyone says, but I
0: actually think it's true, which is Nike for a few reasons. One, if you go back in time, this is when they first were founded and you look at some of their earliest advertising, they actually, and this kind of goes to your earlier point. They didn't market shoes. They marketed what it means to be a runner. And they didn't just talk about it as like, how glorious is it? They talked about it as like, it sucks to be a runner. Sometimes you'll throw up on the sidewalk when you run too hard. You don't want to get out of bed and run every day because you know what it's no fun sometimes there was an authenticity to that that spoke to their audience in really compelling ways. like oh my god these guys get me they totally know what i need and what i'm going through that is an amazing way to build a brand and of course i'm not saying every single one of their executions have been amazing but i think they have certainly built a brand that stands for you know what their audience feels is important and as much as they mar- they have products and shoes that people love It's the ethos, right? Nike is an ethos. It's a lifestyle choice. If you can get to that level as a brand,
1: you're definitely doing something right. So, What does Web3 mean in your (laughs) world, in gaming? What does that mean to you? Because there seems to be a lot of buzz and activity around what we think of as Web3, a bunch of stuff that you all have been exploring, investigating, and tinkering with in NFTs. Maybe I'll be very specific about the question because I think you could take this a bunch of ways. Crypto made sense to me when I saw NFTs for the first time because it was a use case that gave me my aha moment. Where in the real world, in the real world where I live and touch things, I could very clearly imagine a TV screen with an art piece that was digital, validated as unique in someone's home. That made sense to me. If you were betting man, and again, 10 years from now, in a martini, we're going to look at each other and laugh. Maybe right, maybe wrong. But if you were a betting man, what do you think that aha moment is going to be in your world? God, if I knew that answer, like I probably
0: wouldn't be doing this job, right? So uh,
1: (laughs) definitely wouldn't be talking to me.
0: (laughs) (laughs) No, look, here's what I would say. Here's what I'd say. And you and I have lots of friends who are in this space and obviously trying to do cool things. From a gaming perspective, we'll get engaged, I think, when the value proposition for players is clear. And right now, it's just not clear. I think even what you described on NFTs, I think collectibles, to your point about what's the physical analog, as a human species, right? And you go back to the old days of baseball card collecting, I mean, I guess that even happens now. There's countless examples of fans collecting things to further their fandom. Awesome. Should there and is there going to be a digital version of that that is ownable and unique, just as you said? 100%. Should it be less speculative? Probably, but we'll put that aside. We'll put that word aside for a second. But right now we just don't see a place for that in games. And I think the other side of NFTs is this thesis rather around ownability and transportability, which starts to get into the other word that everyone loves, which is metaverse, right? So the only way the metaverse works is if I own something or I earn something in a game that becomes mine, the thesis is I can take that anywhere. The problem is, as you well know, and I don't know when this is going to change even in our lifetimes, tell me the day that Apple and Facebook and Google and Microsoft are going to lower the walls and actually let you transport owned items that you bought inside their ecosystem to others. I don't see that day coming anytime soon, but that's really what's going to have to happen. And I think everything else for me is pretty speculative. And then I don't think that's even their intent. It's just crypto right now, right? It's what do you hear about it? You hear about it as rising and falling prices instead of value creation and any other type of value proposition for the audience. So I just think they have a messaging problem right now. So as the marketer to me says like, hey, they screwed up that messaging from the beginning. Right. And I think from an industry perspective, we haven't seen a clear value proposition for players. The last thing I'll just say in this, though, that it's all also good to recognize it is not universally looked upon across all player bases in gaming. Similarly, there are parts of the world where there's a high passion for collecting these types of things. But again, it's such early days. And I think we always will take the very proactive lens of, if it's not going to do something for our players in a really meaningful, clear way, like it's just not going to make sense for us to do. And so that doesn't mean we're stiff arming it. It doesn't mean we just put our heads in the sand and ignore it until later. But I think the space has a lot of work to do. And that's easy for me to say, like I'm not involved in it, but I think the metaverse concept is premature I think the companies that are espousing it, I think don't even abide by the principles that are gonna require Metaverse to be successful. And I think NFTs are speculative. Until that gets corrected, it's gonna be hard to convince someone to feel that's about fandom and not about making money
1: on it. Is the marketer of you scratching his head a little bit, like, wait, Metaverse, like, God. Today, June 2nd, 2022, that that sure sounds like just video games rebranded. And tokens, like, God. That just feels like a skin that we're buying with our credit card, our mom's credit card or dad's credit card in the the video game. No? Yeah. And look, all the different companies say this. So, like,
0: I don't think people are confused. You need a place to do all this stuff. It starts with games. I mean, games are for sure the best manifestation of this today. And you can look at Roblox. You can look at Minecraft. You can look at, obviously, Fortnite. I mean, I think Epic... And Fortnite probably are furthest along at fulfilling the promise or the thesis of what a metaverse could be, but it's still their own ecosystem, right? It's still their game. It's still a game. But I think what you've seen them do and try to do is further integration of IP for sure, obviously with concerts. And it's not just about gameplay. It's about social hangouts. Like that's all great stuff. But of course, the question will be, okay, I spend all my time and investment in, in Fortnite. What if I wanted to take all of that to horizon or to something apple's going to create right etc and the answer right now is well you can't and again just as an observer total observer you know recent legal disputes amongst various players doesn't really give you hope that those walls are coming down anytime soon i think someone's got to figure out a way to create common space for players to come together and do the types of things that we think a metaverse will do but actually the last thing i'll say on the hardware stuff too it's like I love that facebook's investing in hardware and sony's investing in vr hardware apple sounds like they might as well i'll tell you this like in playstation obviously has been doing this for years i don't know how many people have tried those goggles but there's just common problems still like they cause things like motion sickness like you have to put them over your face i'm a huge believer in when you try to change consumer behavior you got to make it frictionless and the value proposition has to be blatantly clear and i just think neither thing is true yet I have to invest money in hardware that I got to put around my face. That's really awkward. It kind of makes me sick. And I'm not really sure why I'm doing it. So by the way, those are solvable.
1: Yeah, I think the operative word is yet. I do think they will be solved. I just don't think they've been solved today. And like even the walled gardens use case that you're talking about, crypto in its most foundational form, like Bitcoin has solved that. The whole point of like, I can send a Bitcoin to my family in Iran a lot easier than a dollar could be transferred. Totally right. If we had those walled gardens for currency, well then we're back to what we have today. So like progress, I just want to see the next era of that. And I I asked you the question, obviously, I've actually never even brought this up because it's just too trendy of a topic for me, I guess. But I felt like you were the right guy to ask. On the second point that you just made, on the video games and the hardware, I still think it's a yet. When I was playing N64, the way that I interacted with the game was not that different from the way that I interacted with the Game Boy was not different from the way that you interacted with the Genesis. The form factor was different. In the sense that the Game Boy was smaller and the Genesis was bigger and the N64, right? And there was discs versus cards. Now it's all in the cloud. Okay, fine. But you're still generally, like, my little brother still plays the games not too differently than I used to play games. Again, in our suite, in our riot suite 10 years from now, are people still going to be playing? I'm actually a little surprised that the form that it hasn't changed much. Like the phone, when the phone changed the way that you use it, touchscreen, that was the game breaker. No pun intended. With the iPhone, how long is it going to be before that happens? Is that going to happen in your mind? You know, we don't get motion sickness, and it just it happens. We experience things in a different way.
0: Yeah, I love these crystal ball questions. These are good
1: because <laughs> I completely
0: can be completely wrong and doesn't really matter. I don't think it goes away. I think to your exactly to your point. I think those form factors and familiarity kind of of devices. I think those just stick around. I mean, PC gaming is making a comeback. I mean, there's there's a growing percent of the market that still wants to play on a PC, despite obviously mobile kind of being a growth area as well. Consoles still hanging in there, so they're not going away, right? And I think it's additive. I think the challenge is with form factor, and I see this a lot like in market analysis of the gaming industry, which just speaks to, I think, the lack of understanding of how these things work. Just because there are more phones out there than PCs and laptops and consoles, that doesn't mean that's where gaming is going to exist in the future only. I mean, I can sit here, we can talk about how hard it is to make a game on a mobile device, not just that it's fun, but that actually keeps you playing and equally important that you actually might spend in it because the development costs for those games just keep going up. And so gaming is also in this interesting space where games keep slipping, the costs keep going up, the quality bar and expectation of players keeps going up. And these are businesses, right? I mean, these are people that expect paychecks, and need paychecks. To, and so I, I think actually those form factors have to stick around because To take full bets on new form factors that those games are going to work well, that they're going to monetize well, that players are going to stick around, they're just massive unknowns. So I think what will happen is what's happening with mobile. You'll hear companies talk about mobile like it's some new thing. And it's not, obviously mobile's not new, but what is new is the importance of understanding what it makes to make a great game on mobile. And I think the same thing will happen to your point with VR and or AR, and the same thing will happen with some new form factor after that. But I don't think it replaces what's already very well entrenched, very well
1: monetizable, very well understood and liked by players. You mentioned earlier, it's Arcane, right? The show, yes, correct. Yeah, okay, the show that you made. So my understanding is that you're taking characters from League of Legends and creating storylines around them in a movie or in the show, right? Similar to like whatever Marvel taking Captain America and others and creating their own shows out of them. Is that right? That's exactly right. And the thing to just
0: emphasize, I think for folks that might say like, well, that sounds obvious. Is it
1: working? Did it work?
0: Arcane was, I mean, it was the number one show in 30 countries. It was the second most watched program on Netflix while it was out. And yeah, I mean, it's huge. It's a It was a huge hit. It kind of goes back to something you said earlier, we talked about earlier, which is Marvel, you know, which again does this as well as anyone out there. They were born right out of comics, for sure. And comics lent, went to TV, film, and then gaming kind of came last. So and the reason I say it that order is because the characters and the lore and the background, the worlds, et cetera, were, those were set, right? Those were set by those other vehicles. So that when you played the game, you were looking for a more immersive experience in those things that you saw on screen or in a comic book. For us, it's the exact opposite. People have been playing League of Legends for over 10 years. The game itself actually doesn't tell any story whatsoever. It's a MOBA. It's a 5v5 competitive game. And yes, there's champions and there's worlds, et cetera, but that's not actually what the game delivers. And so part of our opportunity is to use something like Arcane to take all these characters that players have played with for years and actually give them stories, give them background, give them context, give them personalities and let players see them in a totally different light. And it just, it worked really well for us. You know, it's something players have been asking for, for years. When you invest that much time every single day, week, et cetera, with friends playing, you care deeply about those characters, even though there is no story there in the game. So Arcane is a wonderful adjunct for us to kind of create space, care about our lore and canon, if you will, in a way that we really haven't had to in the past. And, and honestly let our games do what they do best, which is competitive play, social play, you know, competence, et cetera. Like if you think about self-determination theory, you know, there's those three things that, that humans care about, getting good at something, playing with others, and having autonomy to be creative. That is game development. And so games have to be good at one or more of those things. And I think letting Arcane take the story immersive side of things, I think is something we can do uniquely. I'm sorry, what, what is self-determination theory? Can you go back to that? basically, there's like three core components of what each of us as humans kind of drives us. One is competence, like how good are we at something? Can we get good at something? One is, I think, called relatedness. So basically, how's socializing, right? So I want to do this with others. I'm motivated by the fact I'm going to engage others in this activity. And the third is autonomy, which is basically I want to create. I want to be able to do things on my own in my own way. And if you look at game development, and you can, t- you can pick any game out there, they will adhere, the good games will adhere to one or more of those things. Roblox, for example, Minecraft is all about autonomy and probably relatedness, right? It's a social construct. Fortnite is probably competence. I want to get good at it. I want to battle royale. I want to survive and win. I want my chicken dinner. But it's also about relatedness. I want to play with friends. And so League of Legends is definitely about competence. I want to win. I want to get good at it. I have ranked boards. I want to go up the ranking ladder, etc. cetera. And it's also about social and so when you know your game is gonna be delivering on those need states, right, and what motivates you as a human, that allows you to use other avenues like eSports or Arcane to kind of fire different synapses in the brain that gets you still excited to be a fan and it keeps you in the ecosystem. So again, like it has to, again, the quality bar has to be high. You know, I think you can't just put garbage out there and there's countless examples of these out there as well where it just missed the mark. But I think when you're kind of trying to foster fandom, like you have to take great care and what you put out there. And I think that's something that we constantly are nervous about as well. It's like, we want to make sure
1: it's the best thing we can for our players. So, Great place to wrap it. I always end these things the same way. The first, let's assume you're hiring for a shitload of stuff. Any key roles that you can think of? Yeah, I, I mean, across the board in marketing. So, you know, we hire
0: brand leaders to work with product teams on the games. We hire creative leaders to build, go build great creative. Uh, another big space for us is community. You and I talked about that a few minutes ago on, on what we think gaming does best in class. And so if you want to come and help us do that, uh, we'd love to
1: talk to you about it. Last question, what does grit mean to you? Oh, that's a good one. Dude, it's the only question you knew I was going to ask. It's the (laughs) the only question that you possibly even had a chance of preparing for. I think it's about resilience and persistence. As
0: we started this conversation with, right, change happens, whether you seek it out or it seeks you out. And I think the ability to get through it, and it doesn't mean like you're good at it, it doesn't mean you crush it. It just means the ability to kind of get through it and see the other end. And then as you just said at the beginning too, like use it again, build on it. And I think that's all about grit. It's all about being resilient, being persistent. And I think it's a great word. Oh, Jason, thank you. I'll see you at Chase Center, man. Appreciate Truman, it. Good talking to you. Hi, thanks for having me. Much appreciated.
1: That's it. Thanks for listening. If you're just discovering the podcast, we have a lot more episodes from organizations like Snowflake, Twilio, Slack, LinkedIn, Box, et cetera. If you want to keep up or support the show, the best way to do so is by following us on Spotify, subscribing on Apple, and leaving a review. Also, we love feedback, so feel free to email us, grit at KleinerPerkins.com.